It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. First Down. Grey Cup 108 is in the books. A tremendous football game. A great marketing tool for the 2022 season. I'm sure the CFL will have a lot of momentum from it. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. And glad you could join us. What a great game. It uh, was one that certainly finished this year off very well. And it's one that I think will get people excited about the CFL coming back. You can't go wrong with a game with that much scoring in the fourth quarter that pushes it into overtime. And what an incredible finish. I think everybody who enjoys football would have enjoyed that football game. I checked in with some of my podcast buddies, some of them in the States, asked them what they thought of it. Everybody loved it. I think that's just a bellwether of things to come. We knew going into the season that there were going to be bumps, that players didn't have the training that they required, that teams didn't have a training camp. So we knew part of the season was going to be a feeling out process where everybody was trying to get themselves resituated. Once that happened, then you saw the, the quality of play definitely increase. This CFL playoff is what a playoff should be. The best games were played at the end. Uh, you had lots of opportunities for all the teams to come out with wins, close games, and uh, for me, that's exciting when you can put a strong product right through a season very successfully. We had a little bit of COVID, but compared to what we're seeing other leagues have right now and, and through their seasons, the CFL has been very successful. And for me, the pinnacle was watching the playoffs right through a fantastic great cup. There were some weather factors in the playoffs that we knew was going to happen with a later finish to the season. One really cold game and one pretty breezy game that did change up the level of play in both of those games a little bit, but they were certainly entertaining and everything that you wanted to see really happened. The interesting thing about Tim Horton's field is that ever since Hamilton rotated what was Ivor Wynn, 90 degrees, wind was never a factor, it seemed, in the old Ivor Wynn. But now that it's facing north-south, they talk about the wind, I think it's coming off the Kuarthas, where it channels down from those hills and it runs through the stadium pretty harshly. Even though gusts were maybe 50 kilometers an hour, it seemed at times that whether it was hesitancy or the wind itself stymied offenses going into it. That was certainly my take in this game. Uh, the offenses struggled for the most part to move the ball. There were times when certainly they did, but it just seemed that that going into the wind provided some difficulty and teams weren't often willing to take long shots or, or put the ball up on medium passes or beyond. They did on occasion, but but it was rare. If you look at the box score numbers, the teams with the wind scored 19 points each during the regular part of the game, and the teams going into the wind did not fare nearly as well. And we saw some decision-making that the wind affected as well. Listening to Coach Mike O'Shea, he's kind of regretting not going for a 54-yard field goal when they had the wind, and they opted to, to punt instead. And he said that coming out to start the second half, he noticed Michael Damagala was really struggling making field goals into the wind. And that probably played a bit into Hamilton's decision to take that controversial knee and give up that point to extend Winnipeg's lead to three. That single that was given up by Tim White is probably going to be the biggest talking point other than the two opportunities that Hamilton had inside the Winnipeg 10-yard line but they were first in goal and came away with field goals both times. They came into the fourth quarter down in Winnipeg's end, came away with a field goal, and then they did the same thing pretty much at the end of the game. The curious thing was they almost ran the exact same package both times. The difference was in the second one, on second down, they actually threw a pass from Jeremiah Mazzoli to Jalen Acklin, now, on the play, Acklin makes what I would consider a cardinal mistake. When the ball is chest height or higher, you always have your thumbs pointed towards each other with your fingers up to catch it. He had his palms facing up. That means the ball is going to skip. And even though the 
feeling is that it was an, a great defensive play, which it was. The hand was there. But had Acklin had his hands appropriately set, he could have extended and caught the football. And that's a far better position to be in to control it. I thought it was only appropriate that with all of the talk about Winnipeg's defense all season, that the final couple of big plays were defensive stops by Winnipeg. And it was really all hands on deck and all hands on the ball on that final interception that it was Diedrich Nichols to Winston Rose, who made a huge heads up play to kind of scoop the ball back up into the air and allowed Kyrie Wilson to complete the all hands interception. One thing I would like to go back to on, on the point, well, Tim White's concession of the single point certainly could be contentious. I did listen to O'Shea defend that as a coach. And I think sometimes we have as fans, the ability to, look back on the decisions and question those decisions. For me, Tim White giving up that single was a great opportunity to advance the ball late in the game. For me, I thought maybe the mistake that he made was on the first single that he gave up by jumping up to touch the ball. Had he not jumped up to touch that ball and it goes through the end zone, yes, they're not going to have the same field position, but there is no single scored at that point. Now, that's a reactionary thing for a player to do. I think that's given the players may do that, but had he thought a bit more about that, it might be different. This is one of the great things about our Canadian football game is the single point and the decisions of when to run out the ball, when to take a knee. We also saw Mark Leggio concede a safety as opposed to punting the ball into the wind. Could be a bit of a controversial decision there as well. It was great clock management in that situation by Hamilton to call the timeout and force those extra couple of plays into the wind for Winnipeg. So again, the the nuances of the Canadian game and where every point matters in a game like this, we certainly saw where those singles and those safeties came into play. If we go back to Tim White's situation, that last single point, he's standing about two yards deep. Minimally, if he goes out of the end zone, he's going to be at the 20, the 23 yard line. That's 10 yards less than he would have gained by giving up the single point. The problem I had, and if you go back to the game, CFL has great highlights on their channel on YouTube. There's a shudder that goes through the entire stadium and people are just stunned at what they've just seen. If that doesn't tell you that that was the wrong decision to take, then I don't know what does because it changes the dynamic completely. Hamilton now is playing for a tie. If they don't give up that point, even if they lose 10 or 15 yards on the equation, they are playing for the win at the end. And that's huge. And I'm sure in a lot of radio conversations in the city of Hamilton, I'm sure announcers, as they redigest that game, have heard that over and over and over again. Again, when Michael Shea steps up, though, uh, like we, we have that ability to look back and say, is that the right decision? Is it not? In the heat of the moment, we're taking a look at position and time on the clock. Coaches are going to make the decision that they feel is the best for their team. So in retrospect, we can, we can judge that call. We can listen to Orlando Steinhauer say he allowed Tim White to make the call himself. But I think in that case, uh, you know, I think a coach maybe needs to say to a player, this is exactly what we want to do and accept that responsibility. This is me. I made that call and, and move forward from there. The thing that I go back to, the crowd went silent when it happened. If that doesn't tell you that that decision was not correct, I don't know what does. Well, there's a reason they're sitting in the stands and not on the sidelines coaching though, Don. That same feeling went through my heart as well. I looked at the television, I turned to my wife and I said, why did they just do that? There, there is no doubt in my mind that that was the wrong decision to take. Great, I've got hindsight of 2020, they went down the field, et cetera, et cetera. But you're talking about a 10 to 15 yard difference. If he doesn't touch the ball at all that second time, it may still go through the back of the end zone. But running it out gets him to the 20, Start from there, but you're playing for the win right away. They have the opportunity to win it with a field goal. I just point to the crowd because that entire stadium fell silent. Yes, they're not the coach, but they're not stupid either. To me, I've said it again, I'm going to reiterate it. I think the decision that was made in this case to 
have Tim White field both balls or try the attempt was probably more so the issue. If I'm the coach, you're saying, if the ball's in the end zone, let it go through. Particularly on the first one, when he has to jump, to, it's going over his head. To me, that one's given. Like, if it's over your head, if it's anywhere in the end zone, give it a chance to get out the back. If you have to concede the single, you still can. The other question could be, why didn't they on third down go for the touchdown anyway and avoid overtime? That's a one that, boy, you'd have a lot of nerve to do it. It was available to them. They were just a couple yards away. Another question that could be posed is not only third down, but why on first down would you run instead of taking the crack at passing the ball to the end zone on the first two downs? If you run and get stuffed, passing may have been a better option on that first down and give two cracks. And in my mind, why is Tommy Condell calling the same play over again? Because Winnipeg has just seen it. Don't you think they're going to adapt? I, I, I absolutely agree. Let's get into some numbers. Zach Claris for the Blue Bombers, winning quarterback, 21-32 for 240 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. Jeremiah Mazzoli, who comes off the bench, goes 20-25 for 185, two touchdowns, and of course that painful interception in overtime. Dane Evans started the night, was 4-9 of nine for 24 yards. He didn't look right. He was telegraphing his passes. The Winnipeg defensive line knew exactly what he was going to do because it just anecdotally, it seemed like about half of his passes were knocked down at the line of scrimmage. They were, and that Hamilton offensive line did a really good job of protecting their quarterbacks and keeping them upright for the most part. But one of the dangerous things when you've got Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat on the ends is that if they're not getting to the quarterback, they get those arms up in the air. They drop back into a little bit of coverage and they knock everything down that's coming their way. And that's exactly what we saw. The interior of Winnipeg's defensive line had one of their better games in Steve Richardson and and Jake Thomas up the middle. And I think there was so much focus by that Hamilton offensive line in protecting from Jefferson and Jeffcoat that they almost forgot about the guys in the middle. Five knockdowns by the Winnipeg defense of passes coming out. He didn't look right. And then when he got tackled on the play where he twisted his neck, was in the East final when he dove for the second touchdown that he scored against the Argonauts. He collided head on with Cresden Butler of Toronto. Reached for his neck. He's jammed it. He's he's hurting. I wonder if he's even going to play next week. Well, he did, but I don't think he looked right, and I think the neck was bothering him. You could see there was a lot of athletic tape on the back of his neck, and certainly he kind of took two shots in that sequence of events that knocked him out of the game. Willie Jefferson rightfully got flagged for roughing the passer with his arm to the head, and then Jeff Coat and I believe Thomas kind of finished the tackle and unfortunately for Dane Evans the way he fell he did kind of jam his neck and that knocked him out for the rest of the night. Don to your point Dane Evans did tweet out when people were asking how he's doing he said I just want you all to know I had a minor version of the injury going into the game but tried to cowboy up for the hammer and it didn't work out was his quote so I mean he does actually admit that yeah he was hurting going into the game. Andrew Harris for the Blue Bombers 18 carries for 80 yards Nick Dembski who carries for a negative one yard, but because he scores a huge touchdown, he gets Canadian player of the game. I thought that was a bit of a interesting choice. On the other side, Hamilton, Don Jackson, 11 carries for 59 yards. Mazzoli went six times for 35. Brandon Banks, two for seven. Overall, if you look at the stats between the two teams on the whole, they're fairly close. Winnipeg is 319 yards offense, Hamilton 315. Time of possession is within a minute of each other. Penalties, Hamilton had more, but the yardage is almost the same. It really was a tale of two teams that were just toe-to-toe matched up. Unlike 2019, where Winnipeg went in and just owned the football game of maybe being alienated for saying this, I think Winnipeg got a little lucky winning this one. Well... You got to be good to be lucky and you got to be lucky to be good, as they say. And the one thing I will say about the Winnipeg Blue Bombers that really stood out to me in this game was their composure throughout. And we saw that in the Western final against Saskatchewan as well, where they turned the ball over six times, but they continued to do what they do best and chip away. And going into the fourth quarter, Winnipeg got the wind behind them again and took advantage of that 
to score the 15 points that they needed to push that game into overtime. There was no panic amongst the players. You had veterans step up. Andrew Harris came alive in the fourth quarter and overtime. And Darvin Adams, who has had kind of an off-season, ends up as the leading receiver for Winnipeg with a couple of huge catches and a touchdown. So the right guys that knew how to get the job done were there for Winnipeg when they needed them the most. We have given a lot of credit over the course of the year to Winnipeg's defense, and once again, they stepped up when it mattered. In the fourth quarter and on the goal line stands that they had, they were able to execute and knock the ball down. You talked about the Ackland play before. You know, was his body position, was his hand out? The defenders were where they needed to be, and they made the plays when it counts, and they've been doing that all year long. I give credit to Winnipeg for always being there to have the opportunity there's something special about this team and the culture that they have. And we've heard a lot of people talk about that, but Winnipeg has a successful culture right now. They are the class of the league. When you talk about an organization, players want to play there. You can see that they're playing for one another. You can see that they have confidence in their coaching staff. And it's fun to watch when you have a team that comes together like that, not only as a team, but also as an organization. The one thing that was weighing Winnipeg down for much of the season was their special teams and kicking game especially. Kyle Walters made another big move at the trade deadline. We all remember in 2019 at the deadline, he picked up Zach Caleros, which worked out exceptionally well. And then this time around with the kicking game struggling, he went out and found Sergio Castillo, brought him back to Winnipeg. And all Sergio did was go five for five on field goals in the Grey Cup, as well as his points after a perfect game for Sergio and what a turnaround for special teams for Winnipeg from where they started this season. Michael Domagala for the Tiger Cats was three of three. The interesting thing, the two teams with the worst field goal percentage through the regular season went perfect in the Grey Cup game. The problem for the Tiger Cats was their punting, that Joel Whitford struggled, especially into the wind. He shanked punt after punt after punt and that put the Tiger Cats defense on a short porch time and time and time again and let's give a big shout out to that defense for Hamilton how many times was Winnipeg on the doorstep and settling for field goals we knew going in that they were the two marquee defensive lines with two outstanding middle linebackers some great components on the defensive back positions as well and we certainly saw both defenses fired up for this one there were some incredible defensive plays throughout the game um, both like I said both defensive lines played well Jagarid Davis had a huge game and it was equally the match to those all-stars on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers defensive line we talked about some of the preliminary matchups being the play of the offensive and defensive lines and in this case, I thought Hamilton's offensive line, we, we spoke before, stepped up to block Winnipeg's defensive line. But we also have to give credit because the offensive line of Winnipeg had been dominant all year. And we didn't see the type of dominant rushing performance we saw in the Western final because of the play on the defense of Hamilton. They were able to close gaps for the most part. They didn't do it as effectively in overtime. But throughout the rest of the game, Harris didn't come up with his big runs like he had before. And there was pressure on Caleros for most of the evening. I think we can attribute those interceptions to some of the pressure that was given by the defensive line. What we saw in this Grey Cup were two evenly matched teams giving it all they had. I just wonder for Hamilton how hard this one's going to be on them in the offseason. Wow, opportunities lost are really hard to overcome. I know individual awards don't really mean a lot in the larger scheme of things when you win the championship, but I'm going to argue against both the outstanding Canadian winner and the outstanding player winner in this game. I firmly believe that the performance of Sergio Castillo did enough that he garnered winning the outstanding player, and I would have given the outstanding Canadian probably to Jake Thomas on that defensive line. Of 12 times that Teams have had the Grey Cup played in their home park and they were participants. They're only 6-6. Six and six. Since 2000, the home division team, the home division representative, has won 14 of the 20 games. Winnipeg is just owning 
the Tiger Cats. That's their seventh win against three defeats in the 10 matchups that they've had. These last two Grey Cups harken back to the Montreal, Saskatchewan Grey Cups where you take back-to-back losses. And for Hamilton, it has to be defeating. This year, they weren't maybe the team in the regular season that they were back in 2019 when they were favored going into the Grey Cup. However, they played their hearts out and to have two disappointing losses year after year is heartbreaking, much as it was for Saskatchewan when they played Montreal. Bo Levi Mitchell on the TSN broadcast, he did bring up that the Stampeders had lost in 16 and 17, and they came back to win in 18. And he was urging patience with this Tiger Cats team. Second down. Other news for Hamilton is that coaching staff may look very different in the coming year as well. There's rumors that Orlando Steinhauer is on his way to University of Washington to become their defensive coordinator. And there's also rumors that offensive coordinator Tommy Condell is heading south somewhere as well. So it might be a, a big year of turnover for Hamilton, and it's going to be tough to get back there for that third one. To his credit, Orlando Steinauer has said that his feet are firmly planted in Hamilton and that he is not considering anything else at this point. We'll see what happens in the coming weeks, but at least for the interim, he is planning to stay as the head coach of the Tiger Cats. I'm pretty much certain had they won this game, he probably was gone. What else will Orlando Steinhauer say, though? You want to stay where you are at any given point in time and say, I'm committed to that position. If an NCAA team were to come calling and offer him $1 million, which is the number that's being bandied about for this position, that's more than double what he's being paid as the head coach in Hamilton. And the opportunity for family, as well as the lack of job security that coaches have, you can't fault anyone for jumping to that position. And we may see that coaching shuffle not only happen in Hamilton, but across the CFL. But before we move Steinhauer to Washington, let's consider this. He becomes a defensive coordinator, which means he answers to somebody. Right now, he's the head coach. Everybody answers to him. He did coach with the coach in Washington as a coordinator in Fresno State, I believe it was. So, I mean, there's some familiarity there, and I think that's why his name is being bandied about. Another interesting rumor that broke on Grey Cup Sunday has the Edmonton Elks interested in coach Mike O'Shea from the Blue Bombers as both head coach and GM. He is still under contract as head coach with Winnipeg, so he can't be tampered with for other head coaching positions unless it's a promotion. And Edmonton offering him the GM position as well would be a promotion. I think... Mike O'Shea is pretty firmly planted in Winnipeg right now. It would have to be a very lucrative deal to pry him away at this point. Him, Chris Jones has been talked about. There's other names. Edmonton is looking, I think, for a dual role person because partly because a lot of money is tied up on the people they've just let go. On December the 5th, the Canadian Football League suspended indefinitely John Murphy, Toronto Argonaut Vice President Player Personnel, following an investigation of his physical and verbal altercation with fans following last Sunday's, that's December the 5th, Eastern Final League's investigation into player altercation with fans continues. And then, just as we're going to record here on tonight, the 14th of December, Toronto Argonauts, following the organization's internal review of the post-game incident of Sunday, December 5th, the Argonauts announced today that John Murphy, Vice President of Player Personnel, has been terminated effective immediately. This incident is all over Twitter. You can see it for yourself and make your own judgments over who was responsible, how it played out. You hate to see any time that there's a negative interaction between fans and players or team personnel. We're not going to sit here and speculate as to who is completely in the wrong. I think this is a situation where there's probably three sides to this story. What stands out to me is there was seemingly a breakdown with security and the fan engagement of possibly somebody being where they weren't supposed to be, which led to this altercation. So again, it's it's a multifaceted issue, a lot of things at play. But at the end of the day, those fans shouldn't have been where they were in order for this altercation to completely go off the rails. The CFL has long prided itself on access to players. Perhaps 
pregame, postgame, there should be a little bit wider gap between the two so that you don't have people actually engaged physically. Emotions run high after any football game. And when fans think it's their right to be able to call out players and, and get into it with players, I think that's an issue. We love the game because it's built around a culture of respect. And sometimes our fans, I think, take it a little too far and a little too personal. When a player is coming off after a crushing defeat, they do need some space. And I think part of the issue here is that the players in Toronto have to walk in and by the fans rather than staying on the field level, which happens in many other cases, brings you very close. I love the access we have in the CFL where the fans can access and connect with players, but I think there's a time and a place, and immediately after a game is not the time nor place. We saw at Tim Hortons Field on Sunday after the Grey Cup, a lot of the Blue Bombers fans came down to the front row of the stadium where the bomber players were walking off and there were some great moments there and that's the accessibility i think you're talking about pat where those players got to high five with the fans they were all there in celebration it was that kind of celebration that we all enjoy we've been to a number of games ourselves where that home team has a little bit of that ability to interact with the fans in this situation they need to keep an eye on who's getting that access and to what part of the stadium. Let's move away from that and talk about the state of the league address that Randy Ambrosi gave just prior to the Grey Cup. He didn't have one in 2020, obviously no season. For a lot of people, Ambrosi this year was conspicuous by his absence. He was not seen in any games, not seen on television. You begin to learn why when you hear of the initiatives that have been going on that are now coming to fruition. Two main ones that deal with the economics of the game. First, revenue sharing. It's the first time in roughly 40 years that the teams have decided to get on board and understand that they are not nine, they are a part of one big entity. Revenue sharing is a huge, huge, huge game changer in the structure of the CFL. The second part of it, and this is a little bit more complex, Genius Sports is now on board with the Canadian Football League as a full partner. This is massive because that entity has over 400 leagues for which it helps, promotes, creates their technological platforms, fan engagement, online betting, you name it. This is a very, very dynamic company. For the CFL to partner with them the way they have is a real sign that they're trying to move forward. They've been, as much as any league has been, and we don't talk about the NHL and how much money it lost through the pandemic, but the CFL was hit hard. They didn't play in 2020, no revenue streams. 2021, attendance was smaller from the uh, vaccine passports that you needed to get into games. All kinds of factors played into that. The CFL takes a look at the situation and in the midst of all of this says, while this is going on, we need to change who we are. And they've taken two, I think, gargantuan steps towards that. They have revenue sharing is no small feat if they can get this organized for this league. We see leagues like the NFL that are built on that kind of parity. The NHL is built on parity. They don't necessarily want a team to dominate that has all the money. I'm not going to get into baseball. They've got luxury taxes to try to address that, but it's a whole different ball of wax there. If the CFL can get a similar structure it's a tough pill to swallow, I think, for some of the have teams where you've got some successful franchises that do make a fair bit of money. But for the longevity and the health of the league, you need to have some structure in place that those teams can prop up some of the ones in the other markets that are struggling. You need every member to be financially solvent and to be 
able to participate and come to the table. In the CFL, we've seen a history of teams that struggle, where others have had to prop up the team on a one-time basis often. Revenue sharing would allow the league as an entire entity to be much stronger than any individual team. And I think that is needed moving forward because the league has to be a full entity coming out of a situation like we saw with the pandemic. It's tough to move ahead. That's a tough task for Randy Ambrosi to bring it all together, but I think revenue sharing needs to be on the table, and it's good to hear we're moving in that direction. What's also important to remember is the success and profitability seems to be cyclical as well. Right now, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are two of the most financially stable and successful teams in the CFL, but I know the three of us, and I'm sure many of our listeners can remember times where both organizations were running lotteries and various other fundraising campaigns to try to keep themselves afloat as community-owned organizations. They were successful in doing that and, and are now reaping those rewards. But we also know that at the time those two teams were struggling, teams like the BC Lions and the Toronto Argonauts were actually doing very well their fan attendance was up. And those are a couple of the franchises that are struggling right now. So it's easy for the fans of teams that are doing well right now to say, this is a ridiculous idea, but let's take those rose-colored glasses off for a second and remember that it hasn't always been this way for any team in the league. The stink has always been, why should a community-owned team help out a team owned by a billionaire? It's not about that. It's about best practices. The one question specifically was, were there going to be nine teams in the CFL in 2022? And of course, that is always a reference to the Toronto Argonauts. The Argos are losing money, no doubt about it. You cannot have 10,000 people a game and under the current CFL model, make money. I don't think that the Argos are going anywhere, partly because... Bell, who has TSN, has a major share of the Toronto Argonauts through MLSE. They do not want to constantly lose money on that asset and devaluate it every year because it's not profitable. What the CFL is trying to do now is make a situation where the teams, every team, breaks even at the end of the season. And that would be a very viable alternative. I love that you say best practices, Don, because we know that teams are succeeding. Do some things outside of just fielding a, a good team. We've seen organizations that maybe don't put the money into some of the things that are required to build a fan base, be that advertising, be it putting people in the community, connecting with uh, different generations of people. So I think while revenue sharing is on the table, we also have to look at, okay, there needs to be some practices that are going to be consistent across nine teams in terms of how much money we spend on advertising our product or connecting our product to the people. Because if you have one team that's doing a ton of work and is successful because of it, and another team that hasn't necessarily done that, be it due to the leadership on a team, and I'll use David Braley, was a great caretaker, but didn't pour a lot of money into advertising teams that he owned. I, I think there's got to be some consistency there. So I think when you put revenue sharing on the table, you also have to take a look at having some consistent best practices across organizations that say, here's what we're going to expect you to do if you want to partake in the revenue sharing as well. And that's going to be a tough negotiation. It is a tough negotiation, but when you bring genius sports on board and you get them invested, now that genius sports is tied into that, they get a piece of that pie and they will be the ones championing fan engagement, online betting, promotion, better game experience. All of this is going to be their portfolio. The CFL is kind of saying, we know where we're not good and that's that stuff, but we are good at providing a good product on the field, the players, the game itself. We'll take care of that. This is similar to what we were discussing a little bit with Dwayne Johnson and his ownership group in the XFL and those sorts of things, we knew that that was one of their strong suits. The leagues didn't find a way to partner, and this is perhaps the CFL going a different direction for the similar kind of help. The league can't survive 
going down the road of doing the exact same thing that they've always done. We know the demographics are changing. We even look at the TV viewership numbers versus the streaming numbers for this last Sunday's Grey Cup game. And there are huge numbers of people now watching the game online. Uh, Bob Irving tweeted out earlier today that there was 3.1 million average audience on TSN and RDS. Nearly 8 million people watched some of the game and streaming numbers were up 75% over 2019. So that offsets some of those TV viewership numbers. That fan engagement through online is going to be a huge, huge part of the success of this league moving forward. When we take a look at our traditional media and report the game viewership's down 22% is what has been reported this week for the Great Cup, but they're not looking at those streams of where people are. We have people on their phones a lot, and if we've got people to engage on their phones with the league, with the players, however we can do that, and I think this partnership is going to allow the expertise that's been built up in leagues across the world. This all ties together with the single game betting, all of those aspects that came in at the beginning of the season, and it's how people access this information. Because you've got maybe a couple of games you're wagering on and you've got a a pool going through DraftKings or some other platform, a lot of fans are now tied to their phone as opposed to watching everything on TV. They're getting live up-to-the-minute updates on, on how everything is going. And it's just as easy to stream the game on your phone and keep an eye on those sorts of things as opposed to sitting down in front of your TV on your couch. That aspect has completely changed in the last 10 years and more specifically for the CFL this past year with what they've brought on with the single game betting. This is a moment I think that the CFL, in the absence of all other distractions, could actually focus on what it was they were, what it is they are, and what they want to be. Organizations that don't change are bound to fail. We've seen that when we've taken a look at companies like Blockbuster as opposed to Netflix. When Netflix grabbed on the technology and had some foresight to look into the future and say, this is where we need to be, they've been highly successful where Blockbuster is no longer even in the picture. I think the CFL is at that pivotal point right now where they've said, if we continue to do what we've always done, we're not going to be successful. It, it is going to be a fascinating next few weeks as all of this gets unveiled. They also have to engage the players. The CBA is up for negotiation. How do you get more fan involvement? Well, one way is name recognition, i.e. have your star players in front, which means two to three-year contracts have to be back as a norm in the CFL. It was the players that drove the desire to change it to a one-year contract because they wanted their opportunities to go back to the States. There's only a handful every year that that really applies to. The majority stay in the Canadian Football League. And as such, if you're Bo Levi Mitchell and you got a three-year deal with the Stampeders, you're happy. But if you're Ed Ganey with the Saskatchewan Roughriders, who's a veteran, he's living year to year to year, it gets stressful after a while. You've put in for the team. You have played for them. You've given everything. If there's no opportunity to get a second or a third year out of it, it it makes it tough. And I think the players now have got their their desires changed that much that they will be pushing the idea of longer contracts. That'll be great for the league as a whole because one of the things that we know is a challenge is player recognition. When you've got 30-40% of your team turning over on any given year, the players aren't connected to the fans. The fans aren't connected to the players. You don't even know if you're buying a jersey, whether that player is going to be on the team again next year. And then all of a sudden it just becomes a nostalgia piece. So signing longer contracts with players gets us back to the type of football and the type of team building that we grew up watching. We can all sit here and name off the starting offensive line that was with our team for years. And you don't see that kind of loyalty. So it's a huge step for the players to recognize that. I applaud them for it. And I hope we get back to that multi-year deal for the majority of the league. One of the things the players are going to need in moving this way, though, is some give on the other side as well. In the past, when we had three-year contracts, we'd often see players getting released in second or third when their performance didn't come up to there because there's a salary cap in this day and age. If, if you're going to go 
multiple years. I'm guessing players might want two years because two years out, you're more likely to have an opportunity to stay with that team as opposed to the three years when your age or performance starts to dwindle and you're on the expensive year of your contract. We saw a lot of players getting released. I think what they need to do is what is happening in other leagues where they have a guarantee. And then that makes it really difficult for a team to cut you because they're going to have to eat that money. So if you've got a guaranteed 50% throughout your contract, so 50% of year one, 50% of year two, and 50% of year three, the team doesn't want to throw that money away. Instead of paying bonuses, which they can still cut you before that bonus is paid, change it to guaranteed contracts. Right. I don't think three years out is anything too concerning unless the player is signing when they're 35 or 36. But if they're 27, 28, they're, they're entering the prime of their career. I love the idea of guaranteed contract because then I think it does show a commitment on the behalf of the team as opposed to, you know, we'll, we'll give you a $20,000 raise in each of the next three years, but the 60000 puts you as one of the higher paid players. We're just going to, as you said, Don, cut you before you do your bonus. Those are things that I think if you're going to have multi-year contracts are part of the negotiation and CBA that need to take place. I like what the NHL has done with some of their contracts where you do have guaranteed money, but it also gives the team an opportunity to buy out a certain number of players each year. So it could be a, a hybrid that brings some of that into play as well. So if you do have one of those veteran players that has a steep decline in that last year of their contract, there's an opportunity for the team to buy them out for a lesser cap hit, but still give both guaranteed money to that player and free up some space for the team. It's great that you can sell game day, but what are you doing with these guys the other six days of the week? And that's where I think engagement really is going to be huge. That's where Genius Sports can really be a game changer. Pull Tracker Heath, we are done 2021 and we have a champion. We do. Dini 13 was almost a wire-to-wire winner. They were in the top three, I believe, throughout the entire season and really ran away with it with a successful end to the season and a near-perfect playoff run. Dini 13, if I'm not mistaken, also tied CFL America for the best winning percentage in choices. They did. They both finished with 45 correct, 24 incorrect for a 65.22 win percentage. And I also have to give a tip of the cap to our own Don Charabin and Pat Mooney for finishing second and third in our pick and pool this year. So well done, gentlemen. I know Dini 13's got a target on their back and you'll be gunning for them in the next one. Third down. The Canadian Football League 2021 season, 14 games, a lot of great stories, a lot of interesting drama. What from it would you think is for me I'm not I'm not going to go to the games itself first for me it was about first of all getting to the field working through all the how do we have the league operate in a pandemic time and I have to give hats off to everyone involved the players made a ton of sacrifices and were locked down much more than they've ever been before but they did that to bring the product to the field When you take a look at the number of cases that occurred in CFL teams over the course of the year, I think there was phenomenal success in the fact that Edmonton was really the only team that was impacted. One game was lost to COVID for the Canadian Football League. One. So for me, that's the success of the season right there. And to complete the season without further incidents right through the Great Cup and the playoffs, as we mentioned before, was a fantastic end to an awesome season. Something that jumps out to me, and this carries through from the cancelled season of 2020, we learned a lot about how passionate the players are about the CFL. We know there's a very strong fan base. We all hope that what the league is doing now will expand that fan base and continue to make a profitable and successful league. But it was following some of these players on Twitter when they didn't know when that next game was going to be, if the season was going to happen, they were all ready at the drop of a hat to get themselves back up to their Canadian city to get into those training camps and get playing. So, you know, you look at some of those faces of the league, like a Michael Riley and a Willie Jefferson and Cody Fajardo, Simone Lawrence, the list goes on. And these guys were all 
so excited to be a part of this Canadian league. And it's that we get back to that player recognition. I'm sure at this point, Willie Jefferson could run for mayor in Winnipeg and win in a landslide. <laughs> the same thing goes with some of the most popular players across the league. And, and that's something that really stands out. I'm proud of the league that we have developed as a country and as fans, that we've got some of these all-star players that are as excited about the league as we are. After four weeks or four games, Edmonton is two and two, Calgary is one and three. Calgary goes on a tear and almost finishes in second place. Edmonton, on the other hand, gets ripped and finishes in last place in the league. The other story related to that, Trevor Harris, who's seen as the man in Edmonton, doesn't finish the season there. Nick Arbuckle, who the Argos went out of their way to get from Ottawa when he became available, doesn't finish the season there. Going forward, is Michael Riley going to be the quarterback of the British Columbia Lions? Is Bo Levi Mitchell going to be able to play anymore? We could see a real massive change. Andrew Harris is another player that comes to mind that has possibly played his last game. One of the most dominant Canadian running backs that this league has ever seen. Injury and father time has caught up to him a little bit. He's 34 years old now. He missed half of this season. He did come back ready for the playoffs, but how much does he have left in the tank? It could be a real changing of the guard in some of these all-stars, and we may be seeing the last of them. You have successful teams like Hamilton finding success because they have two quarterbacks. How difficult is it going to be for Hamilton to bring both Dane Evans and Jeremiah Mazzoli back? I think we've probably seen the end of that combination as there's going to be other teams looking for a strong starter. David Watford is also a free agent for Hamilton, so all three of their quarterbacks are going into free agency. That cancelled 2020 season. We had a crop of players that became free agents in 2020 that only signed one-year deals, and then you've got the guys that had been signed to two-year deals in 2019. Those contracts are maturing here as well. So you've got kind of a double shot of free agents hitting the market. It's going to be a big task for these GMs to get as many of their players signed as they can before that free agency market opens up. David Watford has a very unique position from the 2021 season. He is the only quarterback to go undefeated. Another question mark as we move ahead is, where will Ottawa be? You have a nucleus of a young team. We thought we'd see some improvement this year. I'm hopeful that they can keep that nucleus together and continue to build on any momentum that they have. Some exciting players in Devontae Dedman we've talked about before. Uh, I think it will be interesting to see if they can return to a more powerful position in the Eastern Conference. And the other thing that I would speak to is the introduction of more intradivisional games. I think that was met as a success, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the schedule will be built in the future and how that will impact our league play. The CFL is wedded to having more intra-divisional play, not inter-divisional play. More rivalry games in the future, and that is going to bode well. The CFL is once again dangling the carrot of a team in the Atlantic provinces, it apparently is back on the table once again. Are we going to get some announcements regarding a possible Atlantic schooners in the near future? The COVID pandemic certainly derailed their bid to be a member of the Canadian Football League. But now that I hope that COVID may be after this Omicron episode runs its course, that maybe at the end of it, COVID will be like a seasonal flu where we get boosters every year just to get the new variant covered. Then nothing stops the schooners from starting because they don't want to start in the middle of a pandemic where it's going to be very difficult for people to attend games. We spent a lot of time talking about a potential merge with the XFL in the last offseason. And I think the other thing that's on the horizon is the reintroduction of the USFL. And how will that impact players coming out of the United States to the Canadian Football League? It's going to have an impact. I don't know how significant it will be. This USFL is not the one that played 
in the 1980s where they had star power all over the place. This one is a much pared down version of it. I don't see them as a threat. And because of their timeline to sign players, it's very difficult for them to catch that year's crop of college graduates. XFL, when they come around in 2023, will probably be more of a significant organization for the CFL to see on the horizon. When we talked about some of the starting quarterbacks and whether this was an end, I just jotted some quick notes here. I don't know if there's more than a third of the league that are looking at knowing who their starting quarterback is going into the next season. I strongly believe Cody Fajardo is the guy in Saskatchewan. I know Zach Kolaris is under contract for one more season, so it's pretty clear that he's the guy in Winnipeg. Vernon Adams, if he comes back healthy after his injuries, is most likely the guy in Montreal. But beyond that, there's a lot of question marks. Don, you had mentioned Michael Riley and whether this is the end of the road for him in BC. Calgary's got a decision to make between Bo Levi Mitchell and Jake Mayer. Ottawa, we saw a possible emergence of Caleb Evans, but he certainly didn't solidify himself as a star in this league. We've mentioned Hamilton has all three of their quarterbacks entering free agency. Toronto, I don't know if anybody's ever been completely sold on McLeod Bethel-Thompson as their starting quarterback. And we saw Edmonton pick up Nick Arbuckle, but he didn't really play a lot in this past season either. So what are your thoughts on this potential quarterback carousel and what are we going to see coming up? I don't think you're going to see big names move. Maybe one of the two in Hamilton leave. They're going to have to take a decision on which player between Evans and Mazzoli they prefer. If Riley leaves in BC, that gives Nathan Rourke the chance to be the starter there. Bo Levi Mitchell is a bigger question mark because that's a, a different equation. He's younger. He has more years left in him. But if his shoulder doesn't come around, if he is there, I don't think Jake Mayer is, and that opens up that door. I can't see Chris Streveler being in Ottawa as their starting quarterback. I don't know what Paul Lapolis was talking about that day when he mentioned that he would like to see him as his starter. Will you start Nathan Rourke and bring in someone like Harris to play the backup role, to do some coaching? Where does either Dane Evans or Mazzoli land? If they land in BC or Ottawa, then you've got some different competitions. Don't be surprised if one of those two winds up in Edmonton. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.